0: What's really crazy to me is how late in my career I've even heard that term. It seems like very obvious to certain artists and creatives and completely foreign to others. You know, every now and then you truly run into something that just like blows your mind and completely changes the way you think and operate. And this was one of them, and I can't stop talking about it.
1: Welcome back to Building Better Games, where we help you, leaders in game development, create better games through holistic leadership. Today we're gonna be talking about art direction and strategy and why it is so complex and important. Have you ever been in these situations, exploring solutions but can't seem to get on the same page about which direction you wanna go with your creative and art? Struggling to get your team aligned on what's most important to communicate to the player visually, Do you have trouble finding an approach that works with the skills and experience of your art team? Do you struggle with how to define ownership or authority to make decisions for you and your contributors? We've also seen this. When art direction is not clear, it creates confusion. Tons of rework and frustrated artists and teams. In this podcast, we will demonstrate to you what a holistic approach to art leadership looks like from top to bottom. And today we have an awesome art leader and a good friend, Tomasz Jek. With him, we're gonna dive into how to break things down for your team effectively, set clear direction, and develop a consistent and player-focused art style that will focus your team on what's important. When all is said and done, you'll have a deeper understanding of the role that art leadership and direction play on your teams so you can build even better games. Welcome, sir.
0: Yay, hello. Wow, what a, what a great intro. I'm excited to learn all that stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who's in so, charge wait, here? Wait, am I the one that, that's going <laughs> to say this? Who's in charge here?
2: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Tomash.
0: All right. So my name's Timash Jek. I come from an animation background in games. I started as an intern at Pixar in animation, worked on Halo Reach at Bungie, went to Blizzard where I worked on Project Titan, and went to Riot where I worked on a bunch of R&D, League of Legends, and did some leadership there in the art management space. So I most of my career is in individual contribution, but I have a little bit of tail end there in uh, art management and art leading. And now I am a co-founder of a independent studio called Tandemi, and we're making our first game Begone Beast. And so I now you do everything oh, management. <laughs> sure, yes. <yeah. laughs> oh, and just, uh, uh, I co-founded this studio with my wife, Clarissa Bernardo, who is the... Uh, Engineer on the team, and I'm the artist.
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. All you need to make a great game. Um, Yeah. So, uh, and a thousand other things. So, we wanted to look at this idea of art direction and creative. Like, I don't know. Like, I think the top level one was, you know, what does it mean to get people on the same page when it comes to art and creative direction?
0: I think a lot of my sort of directing style and leadership style comes from being an individual contributor and really thinking about, like, what are the types of problems I liked solving as an individual contributor and what helped me get somewhere fastest? And also just, like, interacting with a lot of other creatives and knowing what their sort of, like, quirks are and, and kind of how things go. So something you you probably have heard of before is having some sort of North Star target feeling of experience that you're targeting. And that's that's very, like... I think, unanimously agreed upon that, like, that is important, right? To have some sort of feeling that is unified across gameplay, g- across mechanics, across just the whole experiential delivery of a, of a game. I think what's hard is, like, how do you communicate that effectively to a team coming from a lot of different backgrounds and ideas of what a game should be and what makes it good, It's like an exercise to define your vision. You should absolutely do. Mm -hmm. And then you should also assume that it will be completely misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. Because there's just no way a pithy set of pillars is going to just translate to, you know, like people will need to hear them every week. People will need to see how you've used them to make decisions to start to internalize the way you're using them. Just assume that the work an artist or creative is going to do is going to be way off is just assume that so a really like simple example would be like a lot of times you will give them the pillars give them all these ideas of what the game is and then you'll say you know have fun with it make some cool concepts or make a cool thing you know right and then there's this inevitable like oh no the things they submitted are t- like not at all in line mm-hmm. how is that possible you know
2: there's a story I have about this from the production side, and it was a, a map I was working on, like a level I was working on. And it came down to like, we wanted to feel fantasy and all these different things. Mm. And we heard and like an off the cuff conversation of somebody's like what they interpreted us to be saying when we were like, oh, a fantasy and like a foresty vibe and all these different things. Mm-hmm. They were like, yeah, it's like, you know, if you were, it kind of looks pretty, but if you were to fall, it would cut you. Mm. And, so, and it was like, oh, that is technically a fantasy and that sort of matches all the things we said, but it's actually not at all what we were going for. We were much more going for like a pleasant environment, not a like you fall in the grass, like, you know, gouges your arm somehow because it's that type of terrible fantasy or something like that. And to hear that and just go like, oh, shoot, we need to correct that like now, mm-hmm. you know, but we couldn't have corrected it until they said something or did something. Right.
1: A takeaway for me there is, those hallway conversations, if you will, where we sort of like break that nuance down and refine it by just like, oh, I think it's this or this would be great. Well, no, that's not really how to, what I had in mind. It's actually this, the refinement of that context mm-hmm. in the way that people engage in the, those touch points every single day is actually like a critical piece to that understanding, right? Yeah. You feel it when that like the three people in front of the whiteboard, you know, when it like you walk out, it's the same diagram but you walk out with a totally different understanding of it than you walked in with.
0: What that boils down to, I think, in a sort of leadership pragmatism just with creatives is if you assume that the first attempts will be wide of the mark, then treat them as though they're going to be. Make them quick. Mm. Like, make them very targeted to very narrow things. And those narrow things can still be lofty concepts. It could be like, we want this environment to feel Bambi-esque, right? Right. But just like very specifically, Bambi-esque, like just draw a grove of trees in, you know, as many different ways that you think Bambi-esque means, right? And then the tricky part as a leader is like, is then narrowing in and actually closing off options. Mm. I think it's like, that's like the hardest part, which is like, I think oftentimes you want to leave options open or depending on the day or your mood, one seems cooler than the other and like, you're always choosing between lots of good things as a leader, I think, in the creative space. It's like this ocean of opportunities and every time you dive deeper on one of them, the other ones start to sparkle more. It's like, really difficult to ex- start to exclude things but that's the like really the only way to land on an art style and to land on a way of working and to do anything with the game
1: this reminds me of that I'm sorry I'm terrible at art history but I think it was Michelangelo that did David right I'm terrible at art history too okay I think it was sorry sorry if you're listening to this and you're an art history major and you're like burr, burr, yelling at your you know screen or whatever now you're you're right I'm wrong did he make um, any but,
0: games no she's
1: <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> but there's a, there's a quote that you just reminded me of where they were like, How did you do this? And he was just like, I just basically I looked at the piece of marble and I just cut away all of the parts that weren't David. Right. It's that same kind of frame of reference where it's like you're narrowing, 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 and then what's left is what's right.
0: Yeah. Again, the it's not gonna work so effortlessly for sure. Like you you're gonna backtrack and you're gonna but but the idea is to is to just From the outset, I think it always helps me to start wide and quick. And as you spend more time on things, try to narrow into spaces, thereby closing off other doors. Like a lot of artists talk about the importance of limitations. This is sort of like a project level limitations. It's like these doors are paths to awesome games that we are not going to take. Yes. You know, like because we aren't going to make a good project or have a clear vision unless we start closing off paths to other great
1: visions. and it's
0: like it's really,
1: really hard to do that. What do you think it is that makes that hard? Because as you're saying that, I'm thinking in my head I'm like, that's really hard and so many creative leaders struggle with that. like almost like you're you're doing you're breaking a sacred law or you're doing something dirty if you start closing down doors. like what what do you think that yeah what do you think leads to that kind of mentality?
0: I mean, I could only speak kind of for myself, but I think there's a couple things. One, it's like, I think I just naturally want to keep as many options open as possible for anything in my life. It's like, it's hard to think like, this other path maybe was way smarter and I'm, you know, and I'm just forever leaving it behind or something, you know? I also think just by the nature of, as you get close and deep with anything, it loses its luster. Mm -hmm. And so like, when you're taking a squint at the view at something else, it always looks magical because you haven't yet dived into its specific problems, right? It's like, Mm. oh, I want to make, you know, um, a a really simple, like, if this works really well for me, I don't know if it'll work for other people, but uh, I have a hard time focusing and staying on one project. Like, this is my first real attempt at sticking with one project. I've done a lot of side, half-finished side projects littered behind me across my entire career. And the thing that really was a big, big game changer for me was I've heard someone call it an idea repository where basically I just keep a big list of whenever I'm working on something, like, for instance, I'll be working on our game and I'll think, man, this would be cool in third person or first person, right? Or, oh, man, it would be cool to make a Ninja Turtles game, you know, or something like that. And then suddenly that seems so much easier than what I'm doing right
2: now. (laughs) Uh,
0: You know, and like, and I'll just... Take five seconds, write a sentence about it in my huge idea repository. And like magic, it vaporizes from my head. Like I don't, it doesn't always work, but like it's pretty amazing how much just capturing something makes you able to stop thinking about it. And then I think the other aspect of it that contributes both in both ways, depending on how you're thinking about it, but thinking more in terms of the problems you're solving rather than what you think is cool. Yes. And those things don't need to be completely separate. Like, hopefully you're making something you think is cool. The problem is, is like, (laughs) there's no way to maintain your passion and thinking something is cool after you've like stared at it. Like, imagine your favorite song. You're still going to be kind of sick of it if you listen to it for three months straight on loop. Like, there's just no way to maintain like, this is the greatest thing ever. I can't wait to finish this. Like, it's going to lose its luster. You're going to feel like, is this really that cool anymore? You know? And, in those moments, you have to remind yourself of the specific problems you're solving. This is not first person because first person is a barrier to entry, and one of the core aspects of our game is accessibility. Like, and so this view and type of way we're doing it has trade-offs. Like we're making like Begone Beast is a top-down action game. The trade-off there is it's hard to make really spectacular vistas and kind of like awesome, Uh, framing of the character. And because you don't have these low angles, it just cuts out a lot of things, especially it's a spooky game. It's hard to make things spooky when you're far away and looking down on something, right? First person is much more engaging for a horror game or something like that. But I just come back to why did we choose this? What is the problem we're solving? And, And that helps me kind of shake those things off. There's no perfect way to think about it, though.
2: That idea, um, I loved how you said, like, we're trying to solve a problem here, not just make something cool. Like, yeah. so if we can make something cool and it solves the problem, great. But sometimes we're going to solve the problem and it's not going to be the coolest part of yeah. the, all the art that's created. And that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that this overall experience won't be cool. It doesn't mean this overall thing will be engaging, but you can... It's almost like a sub-optimization problem. If everything is it just has to be as cool as it can be, then actually what you end up with is like a bunch of cool stuff that maybe doesn't fit well together or something like right. that. Right, and a lot of games, you, you a lost lot the of
0: games have that problem, which is like a lot of awesome elements that don't fit together. Right. Um, I had this like, uh, comic. It was from Czech Republic, which is where I'm from. It was just like I had glued it to my door as a infant or as a toddler. And later in my life, I was like, wow, this is actually really relevant to my career. But it's like about this dog and cat that are making a soup together, like a stew. And the cat puts in all of its favorite ingredients, and the dog puts in all of its favorite ingredients. And unsurprisingly... The soup is disgusting. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. If I had to pick one sentence of everything you've said, it's just like, I'm like, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Because again, the soup is the product, right? The mm-hmm. soup is the thing that we're all hoping to eat and enjoy afterwards. And and we assumed that just because we all put a bunch of stuff in it that we were really excited about, that the soup would be good. And the lesson is, is that you cannot make that assumption because the soup is a separate thing. It's It's greater mm-hmm. than the sum of its parts, right? Yeah. And so you you made this statement where you're like, hey, I think that this stuff should be focused on what it feels like, what the experience is, mm-hmm. and it should merge gracefully with game mechanics. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just like a, such a concise and beautiful way to say that, because to me, I, I will say, if, if you ask me to pick one thing that sort of separates the wheat from the chaff, if you will, of great art direction, from what I've seen from an outsider's perspective, it is that. Thing that you've said. If I'm like selling all thousand of our art assets to the Louvre and we're going to make a billion dollars because this stuff's that awesome and that's the business strategy, then like we can get all excited about each individual picture we make. Mm -hmm. But like if we're making a game, then there's this vision of what an experience is, and these things are just their ingredients that go with a bunch of other ingredients. And you're essentially what you're saying is, as a leader, I have to keep the soup in mind. The soup is the thing that we're selling, the thing that's valuable and and again, it sounds so silly, but it's so not intuitive for a lot of game developers and I'm yeah, I'm just curious what comes up for you as I say that because that's the thing that gets me excited.
0: So here's maybe a second, uh, I don't know controversial thought or something like that. You're up to at
2: least three <laughs>
0: <laughs> Three <laughs> uh, I think passion and and people have said this before, but passion is is like this high-toted, positive trait to have in games, right? Like passionate artists, passionate creatives, like people are very passionate about making a game. I find that there are lots of ways that this is misused, misrepresented. And this is what, when I'm, how I want to tie it back to the soup thing you're talking about, which is like, if you tell a bunch of creative people who really care about product, who are very passionate, that it is their responsibility to make this game or product as great as it can be, you have just created like a hot box of arguing. It's not necessarily going to result in something terrible, but it will It will burn out artists, even as a byproduct of being around that, right? Artists that maybe aren't even engaging in these like arguments will just feel exhausted. And there is like a thing I've seen a lot and I've experienced a lot, which is there's a point at which you have argued so much and you've been told it's up to you to push and push and push and push and push that you just kind of resign yourself and just go like, man, it would just be awesome to be told what what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, and the passion is kind of just like, you to protect your own mental health, you have to release this passion <laughs> from yourself and just be like, just tell me what we're making because I just don't want to fight all the time, you know? And I think the counterintuitive thing about this is that nobody wants to be a studio that has this authoritative, like, Leadership role that says you will all do exactly as I say. We'll micromanage you and all that stuff. However, the solution is not to diffuse that authority across an entire team of creatives. I think it is extremely creatively positive to know who is making decisions. Um, it is extremely beneficial for for creatives to know I am not the one making this decision, or I am, and that way, when I have some passionate opinion on something, I know to direct it at a specific person who is making a decision. I know that I need to convince this person or these two people or something like that. And I won't waste my time, or at least I won't like run myself ragged just yelling it at the room. Um, Similarly, if you tell a really experienced, passionate, creative that they are responsible for something, but don't explicitly give them authority over making decisions about it, that is another way to burn them out. Because they will fight and fight and fight and fight and push and push and push and push, but not actually be able to meaningfully make a pivot or a change without exerting tons of effort, tons of mental effort. Maybe somebody who isn't good at convincing the room would actually make great decisions if you just said whatever decision they make is the one the team is doing. I definitely feel like clear paths of authority is like one of my biggest takeaways from my career and something I hope to establish really clearly um, in my indie development life.
1: That's so awesome. And I, I love to hear that too, because I think there's a leadership maturity that's demonstrated there. And I agree with you. I think that especially nowadays, we've seen more examples of what you're talking about where the the intention, the good and pure intention was democracy and it ended up being chaos versus the like hyper draconian and like one person's like going around and whipping everybody to just create assets. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask you about, you talked about this concept of a visual hierarchy. Oh yeah. And it Mm -hmm. was super cool. And I'd never heard anybody explain it quite like you did. Can you go into that and like how you use that as an effective tool to kind of like contextualize things for artists?
0: Absolutely. So this is like, what's really crazy to me is how late in my career I've even heard that term. It seems like very obvious to certain artists and creatives and completely foreign to others. And it complete, it was like, you know, every now and then you truly run into something that just like blows your mind and completely changes the way you think and operate. And this was one of them. And I can't stop talking about it. So visual hierarchy Especially in games, but it's like now I just see the whole world this way, but especially in games is how do you prioritize the information that the user is experiencing? And the reason it's so important in games is there's so much information that's coming at you. If you just make every bit of information really cool looking, you are not helping clarify where someone should be looking. And so a great example that's very common in a lot of games is you'll have the background of a game, like the environment, some vista in the distance. Very frequently, there is a limited saturation field that studios will apply to that and will say the stuff in the background has to fall within these values of saturation so that they cannot have high contrast elements on them and will not distract the player from what they should be looking at, what's relevant to their decision making. Its purpose is only to make you feel the setting and the theme, which is an important piece of information, but not the most important, right? The most important is probably like, where am I, the player character, you know? And so oftentimes, like you'll see things like a big outline around them or the highest color and 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 concentration of, of detail. But I think what really blew my mind is, is this concept of contrast is ubiquitous across all of the elements in your game. So a lot of people will intuitively suggest things like desaturate the background, but that is one of a million possibilities that you can utilize to make that information feel less important. And I think that's like really critical because oftentimes what happens is like, well, my art style is to be very colorful. So I'm not gonna desaturate the background because that goes against like how I want I want the players to feel like they're in this beautiful, colorful place. And it's like, good news, there are thousands of other ways to make that background not as important. Like one of my favorite that like, I really had never thought about before is, uh, and it's literally just, it's like, where do you demonstrate contrast? So for an example, how much detail you place on an object can be contrasted with not putting much detail on another object. Like, you'll see this in, like, animated films a lot. Like, if there's a shot of a crowd and you just instantly know which one's the main character because they're, like, the only one with, like, a fleshed-out face and, like, detailed pores and hair and they have a very, like... It's like, wow, this one's wearing a tuxedo and everybody else just seems, like, pawns or, like, faceless, just, like, splotches of color. And they might be just as saturated and just as high contrast and just but just by not having detail... You have now created a a hierarchy of importance using detail. And then now if you can unify the hierarchy of importance to all departments and you can let them solve it in ways that suit the style, suit their own taste of what is cool, you're really unlocking, I think, one of the most enjoyable and rewarding things to do as a creative, which is solve for a targeted problem with open-ended bounds. And so it's like, and here's where it gets super like crazy and and mind blowing and where, where solutions become really interesting. That importance hierarchy in games is dynamic. And so for instance, you need to know when your health is dropping, but you don't need to know when your health is not, is just staying put. So like, how do you make your health bar call attention to itself as the most important thing for the brief moment that you've taken damage but not all of the other times when there's other things going on, right? And you've probably seen that a lot of solutions of that now in games, which is like health bars aren't just a red slider that's going down. It like does all of these interesting hierarchical things, which is like it flashes white and it chunks down and it shows what you've lost in a different color temporarily and then that disappears, right? And if you've been hit many, many times, it's essentially showing you you're, you're accumulating damage really rapidly right now. That is important information for you versus you're accumulating damage slowly, right? And that influences your decisions really critically in a lot of games. And so that's really important. And similarly, you can make, you know, there's a lot of, man, I'm talking forever, but there's a lot of like examples where artists will get into arguments about how much UI to put in the game, right? Where they feel like, I don't want health bars and icons and all this stuff and everything. It's like, good news, UI you should just think of it as part of the soup. It is just one way to establish that importance. You don't need UI, it's just a really powerful way to do that. And so you can lean on it when when it makes sense. Like, if you look at a game like, you know, Uncharted, it's like really often obvious where you can climb and what you can do and what door you should go through. Because like, that door is just really detailed and bright red and there's like a light on it. And there's all these different artists that have made like a huge arrow pointing to it and you don't need uh UI. Like control was really, um, uh, the game control was really like celebrated for its like limited UI and how it like communicated a lot of things with these like their, their stark, uh, oh, I forget the name of the art style, but the sort of like huge monolithic uh, art elements and, and it really guided where to look
2: and all that stuff. Here, Mirror's Edge did something with this where they just used like, I mean, that, that's super blunt in some ways, but it was it worked super well. Yeah,
0: like I think what I often lament when I see other artists is that they refuse to be that heavy-handed. It's like, why not? You control this whole world. Yeah, that's you know, like, so cool. why not go too far and then pull it back rather than like, you know, like it? Because Mirror's Edge, I don't think back to it and think, what a weird city where they had red drain pipes to climb. I just think how awesome it looked.
2: <laughs> it was interesting because the experience of the player when you saw some, like you, if you got on top of the building or whatever, and you looked out. There's a the thing that we do with perception is we're filtering constantly. Yeah. And it helped that so much. You looked and then you saw possibility. Yeah. But like you said, you saw constrained possibility, right? You knew where you couldn't go, which was as useful or more useful than knowing where you could go. Yeah. Because now it was like, well, I can go this here, where, that way, or that way. And let's go, right? And then you start running. And
0: then kind of like unlocking that as a concept that you're focusing on to your creative team. I think people generally... Any artist I've talked to about this that hadn't had this in their toolbox is so ravenous to have to to learn more about it and to understand it. And it's often the most simple low-hanging fruit for them to make their game or art so much better. Yeah. Because they're so, like, like, I see this a lot on, on Reddit and, like, I always feel, like, terrible because I've, I've experienced this and I do this. If someone puts up, like, here's my game two years ago and here's now and, like, half the comments are, like, I like the old one better, you know? The problem is you made it cooler but you didn't make it, like, more effectively hierarchical in its presentation of information.
1: There's something so beautifully practical yes. about what you're talking about and as a gamer, I think the gamer side of me is coming out and being, like, yes, 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 yes.
2: You can actually do things like you can create styles with this. I'm a big FPS person. And you compare like a Ghost Recon style game, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can like put on a ghillie suit and hide in a bush. And in that world, it's okay for you to get shot by somebody who like you never had a hope of seeing. Right. Right. You contrast that with something like Apex Legends or Halo or something. And if anybody ever does that, it's called like, oh, they're head glitching. You know, because yeah, yeah. one of the core elements of a Halo or an Apex Legends is that almost no matter how far away, out sometimes ridiculous distances, the game is trying to really show you where your the opponents are in your field of view. Mm-hmm. And in a ghost recon and to a lesser extent like Call of Duty or things like that, it's actually like they don't mind. They don't mind if you blend in. And there's a whole bunch of gameplay that's actually around like that is built around those sorts of things or has to interact with those different styles. It's not, it's not just that you created this sort of first, second, third reader visual hierarchy. It's that like that impacts gameplay design, everything else and how players will actually interact with the world. Like you said, once you see it, you sort of can't unsee it in so much of life.
0: I'm all about practical, like very practically applicable kind of advice. And I know that th- this is like just one way to think about it, but for me, style, art style for your project, for your game, becomes entirely just w- in what ways are you solving visual hierarchy? Because there are infinite amount of ways to do that. Like, for instance, doing tilt shift stuff like a depth of field is really a way of making a very clear, using f- the focal point is literally what's in focus, right? And once you start seeing like, oh, literally every aspect of this is just about creating hierarchy and just which way you do that is now the style rather than the style having to fight against the hierarchy or the gameplay clarity. It's like it's like how you're de- demonstrating it. And, and I feel like that to me is also one of the most, again, like as an individual contributor, the most like digestible way to approach a problem is if you tell me it needs to be very clear that this enemy is going to uh, seize you. There's all these other aspects that need to be important too, but this is the most important thing. Whenever they're on screen, everything must now serve that they can capture you, right? Mm -hmm. Just go at it. How do you solve that from an animation perspective? How do you solve that from a sound perspective? And then also, like, I think a lot of departments will, will not lean on each other. Really understanding, like, who are we leaning on to solve this the most? Because not everybody is in the position to solve every information hierarchy part as much, right? And so letting yourself lean on something will also help. Like, that's another thing, which is like not every piece of art or work creatively needs to be like, this is so important. It's almost like in my career, it was always hard. It felt like you're not passionate if you're like, even if you're bringing up like so I'm doing this shotgun reload like is it important mm-hmm. <laughs> Like does it just need to be there so that it so that you can see it or does it need to be the coolest thing anybody's seen? And like I've experienced projects where like it's so unstructured how we assess things like that that chronology becomes the uh, becomes the way we, put importance on things We're literally at the beginning of the project, we, have, we spend an entire day every week reviewing the submitted assets. And then the second half of the project, we don't have that time. And so we're reviewing assets with, is it in the game? Great, next. You know? Yeah. And it's like, and now arbitrarily, the first things we worked on have the most scrutiny. Yeah. Rather than being really ruthless with where you put your time and energy up front. For me, it's okay to be told this task Don't spend time on it. Like it doesn't need to call much attention to itself.
1: I love that there's this efficiency thread that you're running throughout a lot of this guidance that you're providing. I always felt like it was was a struggle for me to keep a healthy balance there with trying to infuse my creative teams with a sort of a a pragmatism with a, like with that efficiency threat Mm -hmm. where it's like, no, healthy constraints are good. How much time we spend on stuff does matter. Like, and, and feeling maybe my own self-consciousness, but feeling like I was worried that I was the bad guy, the big bad producer who was just like flogging everyone with the wet noodle of schedules and and roadmaps and stuff. And, and it's so refreshing to hear you as an art leader say like, no, actually we're going to do better work if we think about some of this stuff pragmatically.
2: I remember a an environment artist I worked with and on a game that most people are probably familiar with and he threw in like very early in development this like temp asset. Yeah. He was just like, "Ah, you just kind of like, sh- sh- plug that in, it sh- goes in the game." And the way he sort of approached it is, I'll throw that in, I figure we'll we'll get to fixing it later. But for right now it works. And they never fixed it. And there's a couple ways to look at that. One is like, "We failed. We didn't update like this the super temp not good asset." Another one is to realize like, "No, We got all the way to the end and we realized we never needed to fix it. Yeah. It was sufficient. That's awesome. (laughs) Some some stuff stuck and that's great. In a way,
0: like I I really resonate with Aaron, what you're saying about being like the bad guy. Like, I feel like I've felt like I'm in that position often. But I think the thing that really bothers me about that is like, I'm trying to protect your time more than anybody. Mm -hmm. Like, I want you to get the chance to put your effort somewhere where it will be on a uh, front and center yeah I don't want you to spend a week on a tree that's in the background you know like I want you to get to spend time on a thing that actually like like you know animators we're a feisty dramatic bunch and uh there's animators jobs are very 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 noodly. like you're you're frame by frame doing tiny little things that stuff that people won't notice is like part of the job you know like, And one of the more, like, cliche examples of that from an animator's perspective, I'm sure it's been memed in some way, is, like, you will, like, noodle a shot, let's say, uh, I've seen this in, like, from, like, Blizzard Cinematics. This person's whirling around and fighting and doing all this stuff, and you review it, and you review it, and you review it. And then in the end, it's covered in smoke VFX and all this, like, fire. And (laughs) And it's like, you might as well have just spun the model around. Like, just for how much you can't see any of that work you did. And it's, like, sometimes that's okay. Like, I get that, like, okay, you have a ton of money in this production and you can just do that, you know? But there's a part of me that always thinks, like, yeah, but what else could you have added and made with that money if you would have just let that be carried by the VFX from the beginning? Mm -hmm. If we would have just told the animator making that, like, make this as bad as it can be while it's slathered in VFX that people won't notice, and then we'll get to spend a lot more time on this, like, non-VFX covered part later. And also the VFX artist knows I'm carrying this scene. Right. I need to make sure I cover up any like unanimated things or help communicate to the animator, you don't need to touch this stuff because I'm going to put a plume of dust here, you know, and, and sort of coordinate better with that. Because I, f- I feel like it's tragic when <laughs> when you do a bunch of work that isn't like relevant to the critical information that's being displayed in any,
1: in any medium. 100%. I want to step shift into our the last chunk of our conversation here because it's another really interesting thing you said mm-hmm. that is i feels counterintuitive when i think about the broad sort of like conventional wisdom in game development which is you said we want to effectively leverage the talent and experience of our teams yes. so that we create healthy constraints and maximize the strengths of the people we have. Mm-hmm. And I am I heard that and I just got so excited because again, I feel like I constantly, when I talk to senior leaders in game development, I constantly hear this like, well, we need better artists. We could do better art. And so we need better artists and then we can do be- even more better art and then better mm-hmm. artists and then more better art. And eventually then we can make a game like Blizzard. Yeah. And I hear that all the time. And I'm just like, I I can't and, and, and I, I my bias might show here because like I was around on League in 2009 and 2010 and it's like I remember being a little mean here I remember like when I first loaded up the beta going like oh it kind of looks like somebody ate a box of crayons and threw up on my monitor and but it evolved into something iconic. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of those artists grew dramatically and they had a lot of constraints and they did create something meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I think how, how much of a shame would it have been if we would have just been like, well, all we were able to afford was these crappy artists and this is all they were able to make. So I guess we're just going to have to settle for it. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. I I think it just missed so much of the story. And, And I love how you're a, immediate instinct there was like, how do we create an art strategy that capitalizes on these awesome people that we have and Mm -hmm. maximizes their strength? So, uh, sorry for that rant, but I'm like, I want to kick it back over to you and just like hear more about that from you.
0: I mean, it's especially relevant to indie development, obviously, but I think like, it is something that even in AAA development, I often kind of felt like it felt like a like, they were missing out on stuff that they could be doing. I think it's actually very powerful to give the artists you have or to give the creatives you have like a, a feeling of ownership because you're literally going like, who are you and what can you do well? And how do we leverage that to make that what our game is? But in indie development, it's like entirely a fact of life. Like one of the things that I really had to get used to being the only artist on a team is like, my decisions had to factor in what I could actually accomplish. I couldn't just blue sky stuff because it was like, if I can't make the environments, then they're going to have to be, the style is going to have to be very blocky, undetailed environments. And so I had to like see what can I actually make that I don't hate. And then that's the style now because like, that's what I can make. And um, obviously, I'm still keeping things in mind like visual hierarchy, like what is the emotion we want to achieve. But those things like style can style is so flexible to me. Like you can call almost anything an art style. It's really just deciding how you're going to communicate these emotions and these pieces of information. And so, like, I've played games that I think look terrible and are really, really good. Because, and all they actually need is consistency and enough of an understanding of that visual hierarchy. Stephen King has this quote that I like. It's something like, amateurs wait for inspiration. The rest of us just get up and go to work. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's almost like a lot of the times for me making art, it feels nothing like what popular media would suggest it is. It is like, I'm just, it feels a lot more like, building furniture or something. I'm just like, how do I get this to feel like you're in danger? How do I get this to feel like you know that you're far away from your allies? Those things end up being so much more important. And in a weird way, as you solve them, you define your style and it becomes a signature, like the way you're solving it. Like if I can be a little like, here's like one thing I'm very proud, like a particular solution I'm very proud of in uh, Be Gone Beast which is I was solving for something somewhat contradictory, which was stylistically, I really like the monsters in the game to be shrouded in darkness and only have their eyes kind of glinting in the darkness. And so to have this like from an emotional target perspective, it's like, I don't know what shape is a monster and I don't know what shape is is just a box or something. And then seeing these eyes gleam from a collection of shapes is like, it's like has that spooky vibe that I want. The problem is, is once you're fighting them, that's incredibly confusing. Like once you're like actually engaged in moment-to-moment combat, if they're silhouettes with eyes, you never get to really see what they look like. You never, you know, and there's there's like a bunch of possibly obvious ways to solve that. One of which is to put a big light around the player, right? The problem was with that, it's like the game is supposed to feel like it's shrouded in darkness and all this stuff. So anyway, long story short, I leveraged subsurface scattering in a way I'd never seen before, which is the quality of uh, inner glow that a lot of like more advanced shaders use, which is like if you put a light in front of your hand, you can like kind of see it glowing around the edges. And I had this subsurface scattering shader and I basically illuminate the monster's from a invisible light source that only affects the subsurface scattering. So as they get closer to you, they begin to radiate with this inner glow, clarifying all of their details and colors and, and what they look like. But as they are a little further from, from them, they gradiate into this silhouette. And like, to me, that was like the perfect encapsulation of a successful merging of style, of target emotion, and of nuts and bolts clarity in gameplay. That was one where I just felt like, oh man, if I could make solutions like this for everything, that's like so rewarding. And it includes very little, includes almost none of the typical things I would think. Like I could have put little icons around every monster so that when they get close to you, they, they have this outline. There's like a thousand other ways to do it, but this one fit my style. And it feels like it's becoming a signature of the way I will display
2: things. Remember being on art teams, creating content. And having somebody join the team and everybody's like, they're an amazing concept artist. You need to go look at the reel or whatever. There's a lot of really cool stuff. They were creative and they were all these things. Mm-hmm. And they struggled so much to get a concept sort of out of the sort of ideation pile. There was a lot of neat things that they could do, but it wasn't fitting. Mm-hmm. And as they kept like trying and trying and trying, their style wouldn't fit in the actual game they were supposed to be doing concept for. And so like the furthest they kind of ever got to it, something was where when somebody else would take something that they'd made and like sort of paint over it and be like, how about this? And people would be like, yeah, that looks good. That'll fit in the game. I was curious if you had thoughts about that, like this idea of what styles can we build and then how do we actually discover that with an art team?
0: So this brings into like, there's a lot of different ways to build style. One very valid approach that I happen to love is your style can be a person sometimes I think the simplest way to approach it is like you choose a person and the style is whatever they do. And you go, now you have like, anytime you ever have a question of someone else who is onboarding onto the team, it's like, go have that person draw over your stuff, go have that person show you their solutions to things, go have that person and then mirror those solutions. Sometimes, you know, like, obviously, if you bring someone on the team, that's vastly different from this other person then like, that's going to be a conflict. There's definitely like a, you know, certain professionalism things where it's like, well, we just want to bring you on to mimic the thing we already do, right? But if that's not really clearly established ahead of time and the artist thinks they're defining things or or is told like to try to push for what they think is the right way to go, but also don't have the authority, there's going to be a lot of spinning and it's going to feel like, well, you wanted me to be passionate, but it sounds like you just wanted me to be positive. I think that that is a trait that I often find mis-expressed, which is like, passion is not happy. Passion is not happy to do whatever and and be amicable or or whatever. It's like passion is oftentimes angry. Passion is, I will not stand for this. Passion is no, it would be better this way. And I won't stop telling you that because I'm passionate. You can't ask people to be passionate only when they're positive about something and then to not care when they don't like it. You know? It's like. I can only not care or be passionate. And if I don't care, I can be positive and I can do what needs to be done. And those jobs are fine. For the people that I want to bring on as like, oh, you're a collaborator and I want you to be passionate. I'm also bringing on that passion in every way that it forms, right? Like it's going to change the project. It's going to mean that they're going to fight for things that they care about. And, And really establishing those expectations, I think, are really important.
2: I love that. Is there anything else you wanted to say about all of what we've covered or anything else you want to add?
0: I think just like, there's like a thousand different ways to lead. And so I think what I always find grounding is really just look for what practically moves things forward and works for you and trust your instincts in that regard and let yourself mess up because there's no like, I don't think there's like an outline of a process that's just going to work everywhere.
2: Okay, so wrapping up this episode, here's a couple things that we hope you took away from today uh, that will help you in art and creative direction. Uh, One, translate the game vision into a clear art direction that includes feel and also merges gracefully with game mechanics and gameplay. Two, create a visual hierarchy that prioritizes the gameplay environment for your artists and ultimately for your players so that what they see first, what they see second, what they see third is what you want them to Three, effectively leverage the talents and experience of your team, not some mythical team, but your team to create healthy constraints and maximize what they can do. And then lastly, build a clear understanding of responsibility and authority for artists so that they can iterate and make decisions quickly. That idea of sometimes it's really helpful to have one person who you can go to to answer a question about which direction should I go. Tamash, how do people find out more about you?
1: Tell us about your sick game, man.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're making a a, a little Left for Dead like sort of a Left for Dead meets Overcooked fun project called Begone Beast, and you can check it out at begonebeast.com and uh, sign up for our newsletter so you can hopefully join in on playtests in the future and help us develop the game. And also another call to action is just make cool stuff.
1: I can't wait to play something you've made someday. If this episode helped you today. Please take a moment right now to rate or review us wherever you're listening. Your support will help us bring you even more awesome content.